0: Recap: The Massachusetts Historical Society is hosting a New Year's dinner party hosted by John Scott, the chief historian. Judge Jeremiah Olson, George's Nagel Mackers, Stan Kirby, Mary Simmons, and Samuel Jenkins are mingling in the foyer before dinner. We are new members and are on the same investigation team. Should we contribute to the historical society? Existing members of the club, such as Supreme Court Justice Holmes, welcome them, and also Matilda Bagshot is the society librarian. Jenkins fetches a cocktail for Georges, perfecting the beverage so well that everyone wants one. At dinner, John Scott comments Kirby is the only one not wearing an evening gown. Some of our history team are interested in some research, such as investigating Grant's tomb, Martin's Manor, and the rare books and map shop in Arkham. Dr. Lisk introduces himself and gives some advice on how best to perform some research. We agree to meet again the following day so we can better decide where to progress. We decide to drive up to Arkham, though Judge Olsen seems to have temporarily forgotten how to start the engine, but with a little help from Jenkins, we get going. Though where we're going is a mystery since no one knows the way. Thankfully, Kirby makes an observation that alerts Olsen to head in the right direction. We arrive and have a spot of lunch and inquire where the rare book store is. It is run by the Tillinghast family in Gibney Street. We uh, inquire about performing some research for the Massachusetts Historical Society, but this irks the shop owner since he thinks very little of it. Thankfully, Olsen manages to convince him to be more hospitable. Olsen finds an old old Bible belonging to the Watley family. Major concern... Jenkins converses with Tillinghast, introducing Nagelmackers, prompting him to show an original print of the original Orient Express he kept when he travelled. Jenkins asks if the shop owner is related to Bartholomew Tillingast, an acquaintance of his whom he served with in the war. Uh, the answer is yes, they are related. And the two talk about uh, Barty and the war. Tenningast re- recommends performing a report on the family as the Historical Society enjoys tracing family members. Nagelmackers and Kirby are looking at a book called the Cult Col- de Gaulle, which was banned by the church and is now quite rare. The shop owner can vouch for its authenticity and can trace it back for 200 years. Nagelmackers touches the book and puts it straight back down and returns to the train paraphernalia. Kirby picks it up, no problem, and discovers that it is all written in French and he can't read it. In the bookshop, Jenkins serves tea while Jeremiah and Mary browse. Sam continues to look over the Côte de Goul, admiring strange diagrams on some of the pages. Then returns to George's by the train pamphlets and has been convinced to buy the Orient Express original print. Stan tries to convince Georges to purchase the Colt de Couls, but arranges for the book to be loaned out to Stan by tricking him with a fake name. However, Jeremiah accidentally rumbles him, so Stan won't be liable for any damages to the book. Jeremiah advises... Uh, no. Jeremiah... Uh, I can't remember him writing. Jeremiah notices a portrait of Dr. Edwin Tillinghast from 1834. Same name as the shopkeeper, but his great-uncle who was leader of the family at the time. George inquires about a local story of an anthropologist who hasn't been seen for several years and receives the address of the lawyers protecting the estate. Jeremiah advises launching a court investigation to force the lawyers to hand over information on the anthropologist's whereabouts. For the remainder of the day, however, we decide to browse the gallery of art. The weather is starting to turn, so Jenkins begins arranging for some overnight lodgings. The curator, Andreas Verhoeven, is very welcoming and recognises many of us. He recommends the Hotel Miskatonic to Jenkins, who makes the reservations. We are shown disturbing, exotic work from Shipley, the magnificent one, and wanders from Beyond, the latter inspires Georges to buy it instantly for $4,000. Sam has wandered off and found some sketches by Pickman of some strange beads. Sam recalls meeting Pickman in Boston and that his sketches were not welcome and he eventually threw himself off a cliff. Stan's boss, however, likes these types of art and makes a note of The Burning Men and Warriors United. Jeremiah and Mary catch up with Stan and admire the sketches, but Mary is overcome by desire and hands over $1,500 for one of the sketches. Once all purchases have been made, Jeremiah follows Jenkins' directions to the Hotel Muscatonic. Georges wants to hang the picture so he can admire it some more, and Jenkins hangs it in the penthouse suite. Georges just parks himself in front of the painting rather than getting ready for dinner, so Jenkins pushes the booking back and also provides evening gown for everyone to wear. George's eventually pulls himself away from the painting, feeling he has connected with it, and we head to Crawford's restaurant. We have a nice evening and go to bed. In the night, however, George's dreams he is at an altar being praised, and a priest is opening a portal and chanting. A figure appears in the portal and speaks George's name. He wakes with a start in a cold sweat, very spooked. In the morning, we eat breakfast in the suite, Snow still falling outside. Even the trains cannot run right now and will take at least two days. So Jenkins extends our booking. Jeremiah arranges for the next train to have a cargo freight so his car can be taken and calls his offices to begin getting documents ready for investigating Dr. Shrewsbury's disappearance, though he needs to be present in court to make it official. Jenkins accidentally suggests Georges investigate more into the painter and the the artist, Uh, and Stan and Mary look up various locations of interest, such as the Witch's House, and which local institutes could help them. Stan is interested in getting a French dictionary to help him read the Cult de Gaulle, and have Georges assist him, since he can speak French. We decide to go to the library, as it can help us with all of our interests. We head over to the Miskatonic University Library. Jeremiah's car is dropped off at the train station, ready to be loaded when we can. At the library, George is met with a late book find from when he was a student here. He squares, squares it up, and we get signed in. There are no entries for Arthur Shipley, but we are recommended to visit the Gazette for any reports that may be made about him. Mary looks up Clark's Corner and Gardner's Farm, but is directed to the History Department. Jeremiah accompanies her. George and Stan remain and try translating the Colt de Gould, Jenkins' reads into the Timmingast genealogy and looks for any information on Dr. Shrewsbury in the anthropology section for George's. In the history department, Mary and Jeremiah find a Dr. Thomas and discusses the abandoned farming hamlet in Clark's Corner and the plans for the reservoir to be built there. A meteor landed in the area about 30 years ago, which Dr. Ellery and Dr. Fitzroy investigated. After the investigation, some strange large foliage and insects began to grow in the area and eventually destroyed the farm. Strange lights could be seen around the farm, and then it all vanished into grey ash and is now known as the Blasted Heath. Any surviving farmers went mad. Back in the library, Jenkins finds some books by Dr. Shrewsbury, including references to the Necronomicon and Raleigh in the special section of the library. He also finds a book with all the tilling gasps, but the entries have been erased. He reports the damage to the book and requests access to the special section of the library, but he'll need Dr. Armitage's permission. Georges takes a break from the Cult of Ghouls and joins Jenkins to see Dr. Armitage, but cannot convince him to view the books as they are not for public access. But he is willing to uh, show Georges the, the books if he was to perform some preliminary research first standing in some research into the Native Americans in this part of the world, and that the smugglers' tunnels under the university unearthed some burial relics. Mary and Jeremiah go to see Dr. Fitzroy in the astronomy department, but he's not in. So they try Dr. Ellery in the metallurgy department. He recalls the meteor never really could cool properly, and the equipment wasn't able to determine what radiation it gave off. When they tried to get more meteor samples, the rock had vanished, either sold by the farmers or dissolved as it was unstable in oxygen. He recalls Freddie Freddy Gardner went mad and he suspects killed everybody in a strange fit of madness. There was also a scandal regarding buying the land for the right price for the planned reservoir. Armitage is unable to share the information because there is a ban in place by the mayor's office and the council. After lunch, we get in a taxi and cross town to visit the Arkham Gazette to research any local reports on Arthur Shipley and the meteor at Cark's Corner. Any interesting articles on the meteor are removed or erased, probably the work of the council. Stan finds something on Shipley, but as he hands it to George's, he gets up and comically trips and knocks it and several shelves of newspapers all across the floor and we lose it amongst the mess. Working together for three hours, we tidy everything up and recover the Shipley article. He had an exhibition for an A. Lalelia at her penthouse dark tower in New York. Therefore, she may have some of his works. We return to the hotel for dinner in the penthouse, but we can't eat what we want due to the snow because the kitchens can't get the ingredients in. So Jenkins tries to get some, a compromised menu. During dinner, everyone bar Jeremiah can't help but stare at George's painting on the wall, prompting Mary to put hers up on display as well, which unnerves Jeremiah. While we eat, we get an invitation from Dr. Fitzroy uh, to meet him the following evening at 7 o'clock to discuss the Clark's Corner investigation. Recap. Uh, at breakfast, the group discuss visiting the Arkham Sanatorium and possibly the Wax Museum until their appointment with Dr. Fitzroy at the observatory tonight. Georges requests Jenkins look up Alyla Walker regarding acquiring more Shipley paintings. He also arranges to have a meeting with Tillinghast of the old bookshop after lunch. With no running taxis, we walk to the sanatorium, passing the unvisited aisle which supposedly has an altar on it to an old witch cult. The watchman at the sanatorium is reluctant to let us in, and even tries to have us arrested. One miscommunication later, we arrange for a meeting with Dr. Hardstrom after lunch. In the meantime, we visit the Wax Museum. However, it's only open at very specific times of the year, so we just relax in a nearby cafe and admire the trains parked at the station. Some even have a tour of the station from a local worker. After lunch, Jenkins visits the bookshop to meet Tillingas and gets a family history. The Tillinghast arrived in America on one of the first ships in 1630. Jenkins also reports that the library genealogy department had been vandalised, removing the Tillinghast entry, which concerns Tillinghast. The family tree he has worked out, though, also reveals he has ties to the Whatley family. Concern. At the sanatorium, we meet Dr. Harstrom, who says the building in 16 was built in 1650 by the Derby family, but became a hospital in the 1780s and then became an asylum in the 1840s when the new hospital was built. Most of the historical documents have been moved to the Miskatonic University Library. We receive a short tour and we can see where the old manor house used to be. Back at the map shop, Jenkins continues his conversation and also learns Teningas is also related, possibly by cousins, to the missing anthropologist, anthropologist Dr. Shrewsbury in town. Their conversation also reminds Jenkins to hire a car for the remainder of their stay so they can reach their evening appointment. We have an early dinner back at the hotel before our evening appointment. Mary and Georges also can't help but look at their paintings before we leave. Recap. After a short drive, we arrive at the observatory and are shown to Dr Fitzroy. He has a lot of notes on Clark's Corner, despite all official documents being confiscated. Due to all the scandal regarding the deputy mayor buying up all the land prior to the reservoir of construction, it has delayed the project to this very day. Discussing the meteor, he suggested it poisoned the local well and the area. He also recalls the lack of stability to the meteor and that it should have burnt up on re-entry. The Gardner family went mad, killed each other, vanished... And other peculiar behavior occurred, then shortly after the farm was the farmland turned to mysterious ash. Dr. Fitzroy suggests we visit Clark's Corner and the blasted heath. in his notes, Georges discovers a doctor's report describing decaying bone fragments from humans and other creatures in the well, and that Mr. Gardner may have been feeding livestock into the well. There was reportedly a strange green light from the Gardner house too. We return to the hotel, but the taxi driver refuses to drive us to Clark's corner, so Jenkins arranges to borrow the car ourselves. With the painting still on the wall, Jeremiah is distracted by it while everyone discusses tomorrow's plans. A telegram from George's wife informs us that we are welcome to visit Miss um, Walker to acquire more Shipley artwork. Jeremiah discreetly asks Jenkins if they should be concerned about George's behaviour regarding the painting obsession. For now, they decide to just let him be and keep an eye on him. As we sleep, Mary and Georges both have a disturbing dream due to all their painting viewing. These peculiar fish... These peculiar fishmen praise their pair, and they realise they are fishmen as well. And this startles them, and they wake up. In the morning, Stan is too busy working on a new story and lends Jeremiah his camera to take some photos for him. As we approach the valley, we see the blasted heath and the gardener's farm is now devoid of snow. Jenkins parks and attempts to move the rusted gates while the rest of us explore the farm buildings and the well. George's shrieks as he stares into the well. Jeremiah tries to take a photo, but drops the camera down the well and sheepishly decides to buy a new one for Stan. At one of the dilapidated chicken coops, Jeremiah nudges some chicken corpses only to find all the bones from multiple chickens have fused together and amalgamated into a horrifying form. He walks away. Jenkins and Georges enters an old farm building and discover another fusion of several farm animals on the wall, causing Jenkins to flee outside. Everyone is getting spooked and we want to leave soon. We discover the meteor, which Mary, Jenkins and Georges investigate while Jeremiah checks the house. In the crater, George leads a small dig and discovers some fragments of the meteor, while Mary notices that the soil is just dead for several inches. Nothing will grow here at all. In the farmhouse, Jeremiah explores, and the furniture and wooden floorboards have all rotten. In the attic, there are remains of a human and child skeleton fused together grotesquely. We decide to move on, but the car won't start, despite there being nothing wrong with it. We are forced to push the car back out of the valley, but it still won't turn over. The battery has leaked and has no charge in it anymore. We leave the car and make our way towards Ami Farm, uh, a few miles away. As we walk through the woods, we continuously, subconsciously keep turning back on ourselves. Eventually, though, walking in pairs, we make it to Ami Farm. The owner of Ami Farm is old and mad and declares we are cursed for entering the blasted heath and pulls a shotgun on us. We clearly aren't welcome here. Further down the road at Pierce Farm, however, we are very welcome and are invited into the warm. Louise Pierce tells us Ami saw something purple in the sky when the meteor landed. She and her husband offer to drive us back to town in the morning after we eat a very hearty home-cooked meal. They They recall recall the events of the meteor falling, including a large purple light, and their neighbour at Annie Farm claims to have seen this large creature reach up to the sky. In the night, we dream of strange lights as we stand inside a well. A purple shape ripples above us, and a soft, chanting voice echoes in the air. We awaken very weakened, except for Mary.
1: Jenkins, however, slept like a baby.
0: In the morning, Bobbity Pierce drives us back to, to 10, town, but Jeremiah, but Jeremiah and Georges George feel, feel worse and nauseous and go to, go to bed.
1: Jenkins, Jenkins considers calling the doctor, a
0: doctor, while Mary inspects the meteor samples, but can't make, any samples, samples, but can't make anything of them.
1: Jenkins calls the observatory, who confirms, confirms there is no radiation,
0: radiation in Clark's corner, and, and suggests a lead-lined casket for any meteor samples. Jenkins goes to the Miskatonic University to acquire one, and approaches Dr. Ellery, who offers to put the samples through the spectrographomajig. jig Jenkins also calls the taxi rank to inform them of their car stuck in the woods. At night, Jenkins, Georges, and Jeremiah have some spooky dreams again. We awaken and see the sickly purple light billowing out from under the door from the lounge. Jeremiah blocks the door with the bedsheet while Georges calls for Jenkins. He spots the light is coming from the lead casket with the meteor samples inside. Jenkins Jenkins goes to to throw the the casket casket away, but sees that the outer casing has melted away to show show the purple, oozing mass within. Jenkins Jenkins doesn't doesn't want to touch it and grabs everyone to leave the suite. They grab Mary Mary on the way way down down to the concierge concierge and report the incident
1: to the scientists.
0: The hotel hotel evacuates to the local gymnasium gymnasium where Dr Ellery reports there's there's nothing in the room after other than the melted casket. He, he, takes it for, he, takes it for, he takes it for further tests and, and confirms the room is safe air. to enter. George's, Georges calms himself in front of the painting room. again. Suddenly, Suddenly Jenkins, Jenkins launches, launches himself, trips and, and collides with Georges, and they, they collapse on the floor. Jenkins claims he saw the purple creature in the well on Georges' chair. chair, but, but there's, there's nothing there. there. Now, George's now Georges sees it on Jeremiah's head and tackles him uh, to stop it crawling, crawling into his ear. He grabs the imaginary slug and watches it ooze in his hands, and his arm goes limp as it oozes over it, causing him to fall unconscious. As he does so, the slug becomes visible to everybody and surprises us all. It jumps at Mary, but she manages to fling it away, where Jenkins stabs it with a knife, which slowly begins to steam, bubble, and melt. Mary then squats it again, pinning it under a chair. Jenkins uses another chair to smash it while Jeremiah pulls George's to safety. The slug rears up and flashes brightly and grows in size as it draws on Jenkins' life force. It does it again on Mary, while everyone grabs another piece of furniture as she collapses to the floor. Jeremiah swings a coffee table, smacks the slug, and it and the table fly out of the window. Jenkins then quickly applies first aid to Georges, Mary, and Jeremiah. He then hears a scream outside.
1: He looks down
0: to the street level and watches the slug flash and a magenta flash a magenta color and stretch and dissolve into a pillar of light and launches itself into the heavens the hotel manager then barges in and declares a table landed on a woman and killed her he locks the door and we hear the sirens of the local constabulary approaching recap now in the Miskatonic Hotel penthouse, the group think up a story to avoid being arrested for seemingly throwing a table out the window and killing a bystander. George successfully charms the police officer and convinces them. George's personal train will be at the station this afternoon to take us home to Boston and prepare Mary's peace for the historical society the following Sunday. Jeremiah tries to proceed with the injunction on Dr. Shrewsbury's lawyers, but his boss shuts it down saying shrewsbury is retired in the caribbean perhaps he has been bribed george pushes some paperwork and hires the young man from arkham jenkins enjoys a half day off reading and eating scones a few days later we meet at the historical society george's is not adverse to sailing to the caribbean to find this shrewsbury character he also instructs some engineering crew to head back to gardener's farm to recover the camera in the well to prepare the photos for our presentation However, some of the photos are damaged. The foreman wasn't too pleased to hear that the land was irradiated, however. While we gather, Jenkins and Mary get caught in a car accident on the icy roads, but they make it to George's office, however. We agree we need better photos for the presentation, so we hire a train back to Arkham, except for Stan, who needs to head to New York. George's requests, he drop by Miss Elidia Walker's house to acquire some artwork but she is insistent that the buyer must select the piece themselves we pack a bag and board the train for our friday the 13th farming adventure recap we arrive back in arkham at the miskatonic hotel detective harden informs us they arrested the culprit who attacked us and they will likely be executed for manslaughter we don't feel good about an innocent man being condemned, so we decide we need to speak to local Judge Randall to get access to the coroner's report. Next morning, we drive towards Gardner's Farm and park at the top of the valley rather than entering the blasted heath. We take some photos of the valley, then walk to the farm. We feel the temperature is much warmer than the than the surroundings. We pair up, and Georges and Jenkins re-enter the barn. As Georges takes pictures... Jenkins feels there is a strange green aura a green pillar each time Georges flashes the camera holding up the ceiling when Jenkins informs Georges he notices the llama amalgamation is staring back at him so they back out of the barn at the chicken coop Mary notices the chicken corpses have moved she takes photos and Jeremiah gets a hint of a mauve light from the hen house Mary takes a photo of the hen house and the whole house and coop glows. Mary feels her life force wane like it had back at the hotel the other day. The barn is filling with a fog and the coop, it, the coop is brimming with light and the forest and well is spewing out more fog and something moves within it. We turn and Jenkins has vanished. Wherever he is, he shoots his shotgun. Jeremiah hears it as George sh- shoots his flare gun and it explodes The fog then swarms towards the billowing light and it absorbs the heat and light from it. The empty canister falls to the ground and dissolves into dust. Georges gets spooked and he flees into the fog. Jeremiah and Mary chase after him, calling for Jenkins as he tries to find the source of the flare gun. As he runs, Georges feels the flare gun heat up in his hand and he throws it just as it explodes, all the flares lighting up, then being snuffed out by the fog. Jenkins has gotten lost, but sees something and f- flees for the edge of the farm. Mary and Jeremiah have also gotten split up and are no longer in the farmland, but Jenkins bumps into Mary as they fear the sounds as they hear the sounds of chickens and they flee together. Georges is fleeing the magenta light and spots Jeremiah across the farm as he runs towards him. He sees the well and begins to be drawn towards it. Jeremiah ch- chases for him before he can. Uh, reach it. Georges peers into the well and it reminds him of his beautiful wife, so calm and welcoming. As he steps up, Jeremiah charges and tackles him away from the well. They turn to flee and everyone bumps back into each other and they all run along the road towards the car. The magenta light has turned its attention to Jeremiah leeching his life force away as the mass of llamas emerges from the fog towards us. Georges puts pedal to the metal as Mary fires a shot at the monstrosity. Jeremiah fires his rifle and several bones and skulls fling off the the creature. Just as Georges arrives at the car and hides inside it. Jenkins, Mary and Jeremiah flee down the road, avoiding the purple light. But Mary falls and twists her ankle. Jenkins picks her up and Jeremiah reaches the car. The light... uh, Uh, The light lashes at Jenkins as he jumps into the car as we slam our foot down and tear down the road back to the hotel. A doctor is called for Mary's ankle and we all collapse in the penthouse suite. Extremely grateful to have our lives intact. Jenkins and Georges consider going to the other hotel that Arkham is famous for. Some of us manage to convince ourselves that what happened must have, have a rational explanation. But others quiver in the bedsheets in fear. The following day, we develop the photos for our presentation and we travel back to Boston on Georges' train. On arrival, Stan calls Georges and raves about the artwork he's seen in New York and recommends several pieces. We finalise our presentation and insert the photographs. After a small argument about what constitutes good art, we sit down to dinner at the Historical Society. We listen to a presentation by Miss Perkins on a shipyard in Kingsport before Mary takes to the podium. She is nervous but presents the facts without divulging too many of the mysteries and really gets into it. The presentation is very well received and Mary is rewarded by being ascended to neophyte of the society. The final presentation from Dr. Chisol on a dig site in Scotland has discovered a Roman temple. Everything goes well, and we are informed the next dinner is the 29th of January, and presentations on the 12th of February. We decide, since Georges wants to visit New York, our next research topic will be something there. Mary takes a few days to get her affairs in order before we depart. Jeremiah calls the judge in Arkham about the manslaughter case on the innocent man, and successfully gains control of the case, so he will be able to acquit the man. Georges and Jenkins agree to arrange to speak to a professional for their mental well-being. On Wednesday, we meet at Georges' house, but Jenkins has not prepared crumpets and has popped out to get some, and no one answers the door. Such terrible butlermancy. He eventually returns and rescues the maid from the chaos he had left her in, only to end up burning the crumpets and spilling the milk all over the floor. It's his perfect day from hell. So much so, he fakes a heart attack. So when Georges finds him, he doesn't get mad. Georges applies first aid on, the, on uh, Jenkins, but actually successfully knocks him unconscious. Welcome to carry on butlering, everyone. We get a doctor to see him, who genuinely thinks Jenkins has had a heart attack. So he injects him with some medicine, which actually gives Jenkins a heart attack. Jenkins is dying, everyone. Recap now. Jenkins is placed into an ambulance and taken to hospital and is stabilised by Dr. Shiny, another member of the Historical Society. He reports Jenkins is stable but had a bad reaction to some drugs and his ribs were damaged from his first aid treatment. As we speak to Jenkins, Mary remembers the toaster was left on so George calls the office to send someone to turn it off. Since Jenkins was attacked by the purple fog, the doctor suggests taking our blood for tests. The doctor advises lots of rest, but Georges arranges for him to travel with us and have a medical care brought with him. When he gets home, Georges discovers the house hasn't burnt down, but the kitchen is damaged and everything smells of smoke. His secretary, Janine, is asked to come along with us to New York. Georges returns a phone call to his wife in London, who is visiting the artist Arthur Shipley, which delights Georges. The pair of them are besotted with these crazy paintings. While we wait for Jenkins, Jeremiah closes out the case with the innocent man in Arkham. Mary sorts out her affairs on the farm. And Georges tries to cope without Jenkins and tries to relearn his staff's names. And Jenkins begins reading Stan's book to help translate it. Janine visits Jenkins to give flowers and gossip about how useless Georges is without him. She also gets some reading material for his recovery. On Saturday, Jenkins's nurse Kennedy Fisher brings him to the train station and joins us on our way to New York. We start looking at the leads such as Boding Castle, Marcello's auction house, and the old Dutch mansion, but Stan is keen to make our presentation on the Shipley paintings claiming we are experiencing living history. He, George's and Mary are all very tempted by the paintings while Jeremiah begins by travelling to Long Island and visiting the Historical Society to investigate Bodine's Castle, which is nearby. Jenkins makes some phone calls to Columbia University to start gathering information and articles for us to be available in three days' time. George's, Stan and Mary arrive at the Dark Tower to meet Alalia Walker to discuss inquiring purchasing some of the paintings. They are shown the Elder Feroz, a lighthouse on a mountain somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere, the Great God, a bewildering three-legged being The sight of this makes Stan leave the room. Mary and Georges are then shown the purple dome depicting an ancient room with three investigators who are apparently living people Shipley has not met. Georges feels he has seen the place in his dreams. They are then shown a sketch piece of the snow beast, then the hound, which finally makes Mary leave the room. Alone, Georges is shown the masterpiece, The Blue Light Without. Something in the painting is moving despite just being paint and canvas. And the signature says it is painted three years ago, but it is uh, addressed directly to George's as a gift from the artist. Miss Walker has it shipped to George's New York apartment as she shows him the rest of her gallery, ending with the Well of Lights, the exact same well from the Gardener's Farm. How could Shipley have been able to paint this event, though it only happened a week ago? Regardless, Georges buys the piece from Miss Walker as well as the Purple Dome. He cannot wait to show them off to the rest of us in the apartment. Mary is also taken by buying a painting as well. At the Historical Society, Jeremiah learns the Bodine Castle was built in the 1700s by a French nobleman who locked his daughter and lover in the dungeons before returning to France. Since then, it has changed hands many times and is now in the hands of the Queen's Lumber Company. Local news says that some of the lumber company employees have complained about wailing spirits and other supernatural things. And the Brooklyn occultist, Waldman Rayner, is investigating the events. Recap this time. Our next venture will take us back to Arkham to purchase the Cult de Gould and Stan can look into the sanatorium for his research paper. Before we go, Jenkins attends his doctor's appointment in Boston with Nurse Fisher and receives a clean bill of health. He goes to pack George's clothes and realises none of his clothes have been washed so he needs to do an emergency laundry. We travel by train and arrive back in Arkham. Stan and Jenkins arrange to go to the bookshop while the others go over their notes on the sanatorium and head to the university library. Jenkins uh, catches up with the bookstore owner and successfully haggles a price for purchasing outright the Cult de Gaulle. In the library, Jeremiah finds a book containing information on the Darby family who originally owned the sanatorium. Between him and Georges, they discover the last Darby, uh, Arthur Darby, married Geraldine Waite, but she died in childbirth, and the family died out. But there was another Darby, Gladys who also existed, and she married Frederick Fisher of Innsmouth, but retained the family name. In addition, the Waite family own a Crown and Shield Manor here in Arkham, where some Derby families are rumoured to still be living in. The following morning, Jenkins attempts to contact the Derbys at Crown and Shield Manor, but is completely put out. We decide to contact Nurse Fisher about her family history, as she may be a distant relative. She needs more research from Arkham or Innsmouth, but there may be a connection. She and Jenkins return to Boston to collect her documents on her family tree, while the rest of us return to the library. We learn nothing on the Fishers, but the owners of the manor are Asenath Waite, who married Edward Pickman Darby. They don't go out much, but they have an architect friend by the name of Daniel Upton. We also learn that Arthur Darby was a practicing doctor and was in the process of converting the house into a hospital, and that if anyone tries to sell the sanatorium, it defaults back to the Derby family. Stan also finds plans for the sanatorium before and after its conversion. He can't check them out, but tries to sketch a copy of them, but the librarian removes it from his possession. Stan sulks by reading some books in the occult section. Uh. Georges talks to the librarian and agrees to get a copy of the plans made for him, which will be ready in two days. Over in Boston, Benkin books a reservation dinner for Georges and the rest of the group and decides to have a nice, pleasant evening off. Sorry, was someone going to say recap? In our New York apartment, George's converts one of... Wait. <laughs> What's, the... What's all the arm waving? We, we said you could say recap. <laughs> oh, missed that <this> bit. Oh. <laughs> I'll do it. 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 <laughs> recap. In our New York apartment, George's converts one of the living rooms into an art viewing gallery and arranges for some additional mobility for bedridden Jenkins. Jenkins arranges for Mary and Jeremiah to visit Bodine Castle while he talks to a psychic investigator, Waldman Rayner. Stan recommends he and Georges visit the Marcello Auction House to investigate the Shipley Artist. As they leave, Jenkins reads the Côte de Gaulle for Stan and Georges. It's not a very pleasant reading. Waldman Rayner insists Bodine Castle is haunted and has witnessed paranormal activity. He, ho- he offers his card as the pair leave, Though Jeremiah is doubtful of his services. Stan and George arrive at the Marcello auction house to inquire about Arthur Shipley's artwork. There are apparently Shipley pretenders, but there is one piece available at the auction house. Back at the apartment, Jenkins is talking to his nurse and learns that George's secretary, Janine, is one of the Tillinghast family he is investigating. Nurse Fisher has also been looking into her family tree, and it seems that both families stretch back to the 1700s and are linked together by the Marsh family. Mary and Jeremiah are shown into the small keep attached to the lumberyard at Godine Castle and discover there is an unlocked door that some workers may have been using to access the basement and smoke weed and prank their colleagues. The pair think, with a bit of creative writing from Stan, this could be a historical mystery-solved paper for the Historical Society. At the uh, at the auction house, Stan and Georges are shown the Tinderlos Lord painting and The Miners, which definitely don't look like Nigo's. The value is more than $2 million for the Tinderlos Lord, so Georges is hesitant to purchase it immediately, but arranges for the piece to not enter the public domain for a month. He does manage to buy a couple of pieces for $5,000, but he'll come back later for the Tindalus Lord. He needs it. Before they head back, Stan swings by his office to inquire about the Miner's piece and why his office rejected it for one of their story pieces. Checking with his boss, they find another piece called The Lesser Other Gods, which of course George's also wants. He shows it off to the others back at the apartment, but Mary, Jenkins and Jeremiah are fairly blasé about it. Recap! We have a mid-afternoon nap, so we can stay at Bedine Castle overnight to debunk the ghost theory. We tell ghosts and war stories to pass the time, and suddenly Mary screams and claws at her throat. Nurse Fisher administers first aid and discovers a bleeding wound on Mary's neck and stitches it up while Stan calls for an ambulance, which takes Mary and the nurse to the hospital. We search the basement, but other than an old boiler, none of us can find anything that caused Mary's injury. The boiler ignites and releases steam, which causes a screaming sound. We stay a little longer, but we don't find any other clues as to what happened to Mary. We watch the sunrise and visit the hospital. Mary says, when Jenkins told his story of the Great War, she actually heard the gunshots and felt a blade slash through her neck. All very peculiar. We head back to the apartment and get some needed sleep. George's dreams he is on a plane with the blue light from without, and it asks him to accept it into his soul. Before he can answer, he awakens. Jeremiah and Jenkins... When they fall asleep, they dream as well, and they witness Georges speaking to the crystal. The next morning, we decide we have enough information to write Jeremiah's paper on Bedin Castle. Georges recovers the building blueprints to aid in the writing, which gives Jenkins a revelation. The Comte Lot of Castle Bedin also wrote the Cote de Ghouls. Although Jenkins needs to study it more, we can mention the book in the paper as a teaser for Jenkins' up-and-coming paper. Before the presentation, Jenkins and Georges read more of the Côte de Goule. Georges does some accounting to afford the expensive painting in New York. Stan continues writing a story on the miner's sketch for his magazine, a tale of these creatures turning humans into spore plants. Mary attends to her farm, and Jeremiah resides over some cases and enjoys a drive or two. On Sunday evening, we attend a dinner at the Massachusetts Historical Society. Jenkins bumps into Dr. Shiny, who instructs him to attend a follow-up appointment in a couple of weeks. Then, at dinner, Jeremiah presents his paper, beginning with the dry historical facts, but then twists it into a mysterious, spooky story with sound effects, and it goes down wonderfully well. Jeremiah is upgraded to neophyte, and the members are already looking forward to the next presentation on Jenkins' discovery of the Côte de Thank Recap! Those in Arkham consider meeting Daniel Upton, the friend of Azanath and Edward Darby, who own Crown and Shield Manor. We arrange an appointment and walk through the snowy Arkham streets. Daniel's family assisted in the rebuild of the sanatorium and also part of the Arkham Historical Society, and is very friendly to share its history. Stan starts asking questions about the Sanatorium and casually drops questions about the Darby and Waite families. Edward Darby is a poet and Daniel refurbished their house. The job was very expensive, mostly paid for by Azeneth, but she has not been very well lately. Daniel uh, tries to arrange a visit for us, but warns us Edward is a little eccentric. In Boston, Jenkins gets ready to board his train to Arkham only to learn the services are being cancelled due to the weather. Jenkins convinces the trainmaster to send a train to inspect the tracks, and he will conveniently be on board that one. He reads through some more of the cult de Gaulle on the journey. Eventually, he arrives at the Hotel Mesquitonic and begins tidying up the suite and ensures hot beverages are available as the rest of the team return. Daniel Upton telephones us to let us know he will pick us up tomorrow morning to take us to Crown and Manor. Jeremiah asks to see the family tree history Jenkins has been collecting on the Tillinghals family, and there are many interesting features. 130-year-old uncles, children born after their parents' deaths. We're not quite sure how to publicly handle this incestuous family tree until we determine the accuracy. Or we could simply doctor it in some way. We decide to keep investigating it until it is ready to be presented, and we will focus on the Arkham Sanatorium and Arthur Shipley presentations first. The following morning, Daniel Upton arrives in a horse-drawn carriage and shares with us plans of the sanatorium and Crown and Shield Manor. Moses' sergeant, a butler, well, greets us, and the maid, Abigail, leads us to the library to meet Edward and Azeneth. The mansion was once derelict after Azeneth's grandfather, supposedly a sorcerer, burnt the house down, but Azenith rebought it and spruced it back up. She gives us a tour while Edward supposedly rests. Stan inquires about her grandfather, Ephraim Wait, who had a fascination with the stars and herbology. We notice while we're there that we thought Azenith was the unwell one, but it is in fact Edward who appears to be more sickly. We make it to the art gallery in the tower and with historical paintings of Arkham. There are some old features painted which don't match modern times, such as the unvisited aisle painted with stone circles. Yet now it is overgrown with trees. As the tour finishes, there is a crack of thunder outside. Recap! The inclement weather... Edward insists we stay here as guests until the storm passes. Ian and Azeneth retire, so we make ourselves at home. Mary revisits the art gallery, Stan writes an article, and Jeremiah reads in the library. Jenkins voices his concerns to Georges that the mood in the house doesn't quite reflect what we were told about it. Edward, happy to have guests over, while Azeneth is annoyed by our longer stay. While Mary visits the art gallery, a maid angrily tells her to leave. Jeremiah finds a locked cabinet full of founding family members history uh, in all catalogued in books. Mid-afternoon Edward returns and informs us Mr. James Clark, a member of the Massachusetts Historical Society has gone missing. He also unlocks the cabinet and tells us the history of the Historical Society and it was built on the Scott Farm, the owner supposedly a warlock and burnt at the stake. Alderbert shiny of the hermetic order purchased the original house before it was purchased by the current owners and converted into the historical society Edward then bustles off without locking the cabinet and Stan recalls the owner of the historical society shares the same name as the warlock who owned Scott Farm Jeremiah reads some of the Tillingars family book in the cabinet revealing some missing children and correcting some of the details we had previously collected Azaneth then invites us to cocktails before dinner, which Jenkins assists in preparing. We sit down for a full roast turkey and pheasant dinner and game pie, with a suspicious constitution roll. We depart for bed, but in the night, George's and Jenkins hear muffled footsteps outside. They see two figures carrying a body up a flight of stairs. They try to awaken Stan and Jeremiah, but they cannot be stirred, no matter what. In order to increase his stealth, Georges still stands socks and leaves the room as silent as the night. George sees a blue light in the art gallery while Jenkins enters the library. Mary is not in here. They attempt to stealth to the art gallery when Georges knocks over a vase. He runs when Edward comes out of the library. No, comes out of the art gallery. Jenkins excuses himself by saying he was just going to the bathroom. Edward believes this and invites him to the solarium to watch the snow. He asks some peculiar questions about the human mind and that the soul can leave its host body, and offers a way to restore Jenkins' youthful years lost to serving in the Great War. Meanwhile, Georges returns to the bedroom, but is discovered by Moses and Abigail, and is instead escorted to the lounge. Mary awakens strapped to a bed inside Azaneth's body, staring back at Azaneth inside Mary's body. She's trying out Mary's body, but declares she doesn't like it enough, so she sends Mary back to sleep, presumably to reverse the process. Jenkins is led to a padded room where Mary is sleeping strapped to a bed, as well as an elderly man. The real Edward is inhabiting this body. Whoever is inhabiting Edward's body has been doing this to live far longer than he should be able to. Jenkins manages to resist the spell and gives his word the group will simply leave the house the next morning and not tell a soul. Abigail leads him back to George's in the lounge. They hear a strange cackling noise and they attempt to go back to their beds, but the room is locked. Meanwhile, Jeremiah is startled awake as Moses is performing some kind of ritual on him and Stan. Moses easily overpowers him and throws Jeremiah and Mary into the room with Georges and Jenkins. (laughs) Georges is distracted by a shadows from the upper art gallery. Edward is standing behind the creatures and declares that the prophecy of the painting has come true. A tinderloss, Lord, approaches us. Jeremiah and Jenkins immediately pass out. Georges, cowardly, pretends to pass out. And Mary screams in horror and throws herself out of the window into the snow and runs out of sight. The Tyndalus Lord lowers its head to Georges, knowing he is faking. Georges panics and lashes out with a knife, but it simply vaporises and fractures into pieces. Georges is offered a deal, or death. He and one other may leave and remember tonight's events, and the others will awaken with no knowledge. In exchange, Georges must set the tenderlost Lord free from Ephraim Waite and his wife, the true identities of Azaneth and Edward, by shattering the lantern in the art gallery. All Georges has to do is make sure the others do not remember tonight's events. Georges agrees and smashes the lantern over the face of the tinderlost Lord. He screams and it twists into a vortex. Georges quickly throws Jeremiah and Jenkins outside. There is a scream and the roof explodes. Georges runs around to the window where Stan and Daniel are still sleeping and toss them outside too. He continues to drag everyone away from the house, collapsing into the swirling vortex until it all disappears. By the time they come round, everyone is in the garage, except Mary, still running and screaming. In the night. make sure Stan is awake and well before leaving the garage to find Mary. He finds her tracks and finds her near the vineyard unconscious, picks her up and brings her to the garage and wraps her in blankets until she wakes. Georges takes the time to try and explain what happened despite how outlandish it sounds. Daniel then offers to drive us back to town and inform the police of the incident. The following morning the sheriff arrives who informs us that the It only found Asenath's dead father in a padded room, and the suspicion is it was a gas explosion that caused the the incident. He leaves, and after breakfast, Georges and Mary again explain in more detail what happened, and the creature that attacked us was from the painting that Georges was intending to buy. We decide to try and end our business here in Arkham as soon as possible. So Stan visits the sanatorium for a bit more research, while Jeremiah inquires about potentially getting access to the books during the police investigation at the manor. Stan manages to bluff his way past the security guard and speaks to the secretary, but, still, but will have to return in a few days for a tour for the paper he needs to write. On his way back, he spots something at the train station. Edward and Azaneth are boarding a train to Newburyport via Ipswich. He will inform the sheriff to chase us up in case they are fleeing to Innsmouth. Although we agree not to chase them, George suggests sending a team to investigate under the guise of connecting Innsmouth to the rail network. Jenkins arranges this with Janine in Boston. Jeremiah suggests he and Jenkins revisit Edwin Tillinghast to show him the family tree we have put together. We learn his aunt is Azanath. And his grandmother was originally called Regina Fisher, a relation to our nurse, Kennedy Fisher. Edwin is a bit annoyed he is related to the Marsh family who live in Hinsmouth and own several businesses, but are not very nice people. He thanks us, and we all gather at the train station to head back to Boston. Recap. We spend a few days sorting out our personal businesses, during which Georges and Jenkins travel to New York to pick up the Tinderloss Lord painting. Upon seeing it, Jenkins remembers all the events at the Crown and Shield Manor, and in a burst of mania, he rips it from the frame and burns it. Fortunately, George's is no longer fond of that painting, and he's put in place appropriate insurance to recoup most of the $3 million. He's even questioning slightly if his other Shipley art is worth being around, but he decides he enjoys the artwork enough. A few days later, Sam returns to Arkham to receive a tour of the sanatorium, getting full details on the architecture as it changed through the years, from a Darby family house to hospital to sanatorium. Afterwards, we all gather at George's's Boston Manor, and it is made clear Jenkins has remembered the night at Crown Shield Manor by looking at the painting of Tindalos. From memory, Stan sketches the Tinderloss Lord, and this triggers Jeremiah to remember the night too. And he goes temporarily crazy, throwing drinks and glasses and bottles at Stan to get rid of the sketch. When everyone calms down, we decide that Stan will present his paper first, followed by George's in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, we consider what to investigate next when Janine calls. The private investigators sent to Innsmouth are dead following a suspicious boat capsize. Given the suspicious circumstances, Jenkins wonders if Edward Darby's comment about John Scott of the Historical Society may be a red herring or an attempt to turn us on against a potential ally. A delivery from Mrs. Nagelmark has arrived with yet another glorious painting, The Lord of Earth. She's even started hoarding paintings in their London home. Jeremiah refuses to look at it and declares he does not like any of the artwork. With the evening drawing to a close, the group are ready to prepare the two papers for the Historical Society, with some more investigations in Innsmouth, but also the disappearance of a fellow member, James Clark. Recap. Waiting for Stan's presentation at the Historical Society, Judge Olson leaves a message with his FBI contact and spends the day repairing his car. Stan finalises his paper with some sketches and finds an article in the papers describing a damaged boat and the missing investigators in Innsmouth. Georges is in a grump about the missing investigators and arranges with Jenkins for a more covert, larger group to head to Innsmouth but they learn also that the new station they are building has collapsed in the night, souring his mood further. Jenkins calls Georges' wife to ensure their children are not subjected to Shipley's artwork, but she's also very determined to make sure Jenkins retires in the near future. The following evening we gather at the Historical Society and catch back up before the presentations. Georges and Stan discuss sharing more artwork together, and while we chat, John Scott the leader of the historical society, drops by everyone wishes Jenkins well after his heart attack. But he gets a little bit drunk on some new cocktails. Another member, Dr. Cole, requests a meeting with Georges later in the week. Georges is confused how Jenkins got so drunk on just a single drink and calls Dr. Shiny over, who works out the alcohol has mixed with his medication. So we put him on orange juice for the rest of the night. We enjoy a lovely dinner and several presentations, including stands. But he shows a sketch of the Tindalos lord, and it deeply unnerves Georges and Mary. The speeches go down well, and Stan is raised to neophyte level in the society. After dinner, Georges comments about something going on upstairs, a potential extra floor not in the public knowledge. We ask John Scott about it, who informs us that there are renovations to open up some new labs. He also advises that the Cult de Goulds presentation that Jenkins is planning should be a group effort once we are all at neophyte level. We arrange to travel to Innsmouth in a couple of days' time, requiring Judge Olson's car to complete the journey. What Judge Olson calls his contact, FBI agent Gary Hamilton, if he is able to join us in Innsmouth. He also reveals an ex-colleague, Jack Walters, visited a few years ago, but has since been committed to Arkham Asylum. It seems several strange occurrences seem to be occurring in this town. Georges tells Stan and Jenkins about Dr. Cole's meeting request and agrees to take Jenkins with him despite being asked to attend alone. Jenkins waits outside the office while Georges meets Dr. Cole. He discusses the disappearance of James Clark of the Historical Society. He was supposedly to be raised to the next level of rank, but vanished on the evening of his ceremony. The police have fobbed it off since they doubt the ceremony would occur at 3am in the middle of the night, and instead he was meeting some kind of floozy. Dr. Cole requests we try to find out what happened. We all meet up to discuss if this is a priority over Innsmouth, That it is strange no one at the society is reporting or panicking over James Clark's missing his ceremony and not been seen since. We decide to keep Innsmouth as our top priority, and after a short investigation, surely no more than a day, then return to investigate James Clark's disappearance. The following morning, we board the train and plough through the snowy countryside. Jenkins attempts to integrate himself into the staff, but they disallow this, forcing him to take some time off. But he and Georges instead continue translating the Code de Gould. They also request that Judge Olson spend some time researching the Comte de Lot, the author of the book, who subsequently fled to France and built the castle in New York. We arrive in Ipswich and drive slowly through the snow towards Innsmouth before the storm clouds roll in and check in at the Gilman House Hotel, a rather grim wooden building. The train foreman, Robert Elliot and his men are in the hotel and report to Georges the damage at the station. Other than a gold refinery and fishing industry, the town is pretty quiet with few social outlets. Georges looks out of his window and sees a few lights on in the buildings on the opposite side of the river. Stan catches up with Robert Elliot to get a feel for the town, that it is a very insular place, the children don't tend to laugh, and no one visits the church but instead they visit a lodge. The leader, Thomas Waite, won't allow the uninitiated from entering. The hotel is also serving alcohol despite the prohibition. Judge Olson visits his FBI agent as Mary walks by and they notice he's being very cautious, dragging the wardrobe in, out of the way of the front door. Gary also says that the bus driver that brought him to town said no one comes here and there's only one bus a day. Gary is also confused why a fishing village has a huge golding refinery, a gold refinery despite the lack of a local mine. Perhaps gold is a person's name. We arrange to catch up with him in the morning. Recap. Georges tells Jenkins that he heard some metallic clanging near his room and he doesn't feel safe. So Jenkins bunks in with Georges. While they, when they meet Judge Olsen, he recommends using furniture to block any adjoining doors. Jenkins then suggests asking if the station workmen are in the adjoining rooms as that will make them feel safer. Stan and Mary are safe, but everyone else is severely split up around the hotel, so we bunk in together. We eat a very nice pike dinner. It's far better than we expected, but Georges notices some of the station crew are not at dinner. Robert reminds us that they are investigating the train station ruins that evening. For the rest of the evening, several members of the team read, and Alton gets an early night. Um, Mary and Stan barricade their doors for extra security and Jenkins stays up as night watchman. In the night, Stan is disturbed and then hears a clang from outside on the street. Looking outside, he sees someone hunched by some fallen trash cans. It looks up and appears to be some kind of frog or scaly appearance and then vanishes into an alley. Jenkins hears some splashing noises outside from the river but he doesn't check and he has remained focused on the door. At breakfast, the station workers have left and we meet Gary, who is updated about Edward and Azeneth Waite Derby. Stan is highly suspicious of the lodge too, so we split up to investigate it, the general store, and the ruined train station. Opposite the hotel, Stan and Mary arrive at the local store and are welcomed by the shopkeep. Apparently our arrival is the talk of the town and they recognise Stan for his story articles. He says it's very unlikely that the investigators got their boat from Intmouth since the locals don't let the uninitiated use many local services. He also mentions the fishing trawlers don't collect fish, but instead return with gold, which is sent to Marsh's gold refinery. The shopkeeper seems quite friendly and has only lived here for a year, so the locals don't see them as one of them. They are also recommended not to go out at night, Then suddenly, the shopkeep's tone changes, as if they were being watched. Before they leave, they are advised to check the new church. After a walk along the river, Jenkins and Georges arrive at the damaged train station construction site. Georges sees a couple of workers leaving north on a handcar. The pair meet with the foreman, who reports the foundations must have given way and suspects foul play. Worse still, one of the workers never returned last night. They all investigate the damages together while they wait for word on the missing worker. Jenkins spots some strange webbed footprints in the snow, which neither recognises. Gary and Olson arrive at the lodge, which is locked. Gary attempts to pick the padlock, but it's too good for him. An old drunk staggers past and bargains for booze, and in return he'll tell us what goes on inside the lodge. We return to the hotel and accidentally annoy Gilman for some amaretto. When we leave, we ponder where the phones are, but more importantly, where Olsen's car has disappeared to. They check round the back and they see it's in the rear courtyard, but it's not working. Gary wants to ensure that we have an escape route out of the town, should we need it, and suggests Olsen remains to fix it while he meets with the drunk. At the train station site, Robert is concerned the workers on the hand car have not returned. As they check up the line, they see that the rail bridge under construction has collapsed, but there's no sign of anyone. Robert scrambles down the bank of the river and brings Jenkins and Georges with him. They find the wagon in the river and discover the brakes have been tampered with. Robert says they need to check the other bridge, as that's where the group from last night went to investigate. Stan and Mary, meanwhile, have arrived at the church, and it appears totally derelict. They find an old cellar doorway, and clamber on down, and using a firelighter, take a look around. After finding some candles and venture in through a vestry, they make their way through the main crypt, with the skeletal corpse of a priest blocking the door. The names of the dead are familiar in this room. Shrewsbury, Wait, Elliot and Gilman, but none of the Marshes. In the hands of the corpse is a newspaper clipping and a journal, which speak of Captain Obert Marsh, led a cult in 1846 and was arrested for unspeakable acts. The Reverend Babcock also wrote that fishmen creatures appeared from the reef and invaded the town and released Captain Marsh, and they round up the townspeople. Stan and Mary venture further into the altar, and there are pentagrams with eyes etched into a small cabinet, hiding a red leather-bound Book of Dagon. They take it, and as they leave, Stan wipes away their snow tracks, but a rafter suddenly falls from the ceiling and pins Stan to the floor. As tiles fall around them, Mary tries to free Stan, and they roll out of the way. They see a pair of Deep Ones throwing more rafters at them from the roof. Mary begins shooting at them as Stan retreats the pair into the crypt. At the hotel, Olsen realises that the radiator water in his car has frozen and broken the pipes, but worse, the fuel has been emptied. Gilman arrives and is very unhelpful, but he does say that there may be more fuel at the refinery. As Olsen leaves, he hears the rear courtyard gate being locked. Olsen makes his way to the shack with the drunk man, but Gary never showed up. Olsen continues to the harbour to find some fuel. Jenkins, Georges and Robert find the the other train car equally sabotaged. They agree they need to get everyone out of town. On the way back to the station, Jenkins spots creatures leaving the construction site and there is no activity left in the station. Georges orders the group to immediately get back to town, find the others and leave. Stan and Mary share the weapons that they have amongst each other and Mary attempts to climb out of the crypt when suddenly green scaly claws grab at her and they drag her out of a hole and into the darkness. Stan absolutely panics, begins running through the church, shooting wildly into the air at the creatures. The last thing he sees is another rafter thrown directly at him. Olson and Jenkins hear faint gunfire in the distance. Both parties make a dash back to the hotel. As they all meet together, Jenkins declares they have to leave by foot and leaves Stan and Mary behind. When suddenly Robert attempts to shoot Jenkins's head clean off, but he narrowly misses. In their attempt to disarm him, uh, to disarm Robert, he successfully blows Jenkins' head off on the second attempt. Georges and Olsen descend into madness, and no matter how hard they try, the swarms of the townsfolk surround them. They are dragged off to the reef, and presented to a deep one holding the Book of Dagon free from its charmed prison. They are brought into the depths of the ocean and sacrificed ritualistically to Dagon. Game over.